Have a seat and turn with me, if you would, to the book of Daniel, chapter 3, and we will return to our study in Daniel. Daniel 3 being an incredibly well-known passage about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and being thrown into the fiery furnace, and often, sadly, an abused passage in terms of interpretation. The, um, the primary characters in Daniel chapter 3, or character that is, and I'll stick with characters, is not Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but Nebuchadnezzar and God. And there is much uh, literary stuff going on, and we'll get to that as well. Some of what we'll see as we work through the text today is this very mechanical repetition of words that is intentional. It's supposed to be that way. If it feels a little awkward, uh, press into that. It should feel a little awkward. But there is for us, as we work through this text, one primary question and one primary answer. So let's turn to the Lord once again in prayer, and then we'll see from Daniel 3 how we might live in the world. Heavenly Father, we thank you for just the opportunity to gather to sing your praise again. Lord, give us a deep love for your gathering. Lord, I pray as we uh, have begun and continue to pray about um, this search for a worship leader, Lord, I would continue to pray that you would provide for us a means uh, to hire somebody full-time to serve us in this role, to, uh, to disciple us and to, uh, to pastor our souls, not only in the role of music, but personally and, uh, and in many other ways, Lord. Lord, we don't know who you will bring to us yet, but, uh, but we pray that you might uh, bring the right person to us and that, uh, that we might be served well in singing your praise. Lord, we pray as well for, um, for our missionaries, Sandy and Sue Nafziger in Germany. Lord, we, uh, we want to give praise to you for the, the praises that they have shared with us for their recent trip home, uh, for a, a wonderful memorial service for a friend, even in the difficulty of that situation. Lord, for the 40 people they had at a Christmas dinner there in Germany and that the hospitality house is ready. Lord, we know that you have not uh, called them, it seems, to this station long term, but as they prepare for the next people who would come into that role, Lord, I pray that this hospitality house would be used greatly. Lord, we pray for Cameron, who uh, showed interest in the gospel and asked good questions. Lord, we pray for his salvation and that you would draw him to yourself. We pray for the increasing uh, regulations with COVID in Germany and that uh, would not hinder the ministry there. Uh, Lord, we, thank, we, we pray with them as well for the believing soldiers and airmen stationed there in Germany, that you would help them to live faithful lives uh, in, in the world where they are that would be glorifying to you despite the difficulties and trials. And we pray for and with them for gospel opportunities uh, that they might be able to share um, with others what you have done. Lord, may we have such a heart to be hospitable, to open our homes for our neighbors and co-workers and colleagues and friends. And may our homes right here in Walla Walla be places where people not only uh, rub shoulders with the people of God, but, but are able to ask and answer questions about you and your word and to hear the gospel. Lord, may, may we not merely be concerned about the, the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth, but might we be concerned about it right here. And may, may we never think that, that, uh, that, that sharing the gospel is simply for missionaries. Lord, we're thankful for the missionaries who go cross-culturally. But, but Lord, 
uh, sharing the gospel with unbelievers is, is an ordinary part of being a Christian. And may we all see and understand and take that not only uh, as a responsibility, but as a joy to tell others of you and of what you have done for us. Thank you for calling us into that ministry. Give us understanding into your word today and help us to apply it, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. It is not a new problem that God's people have been asked by the culture in which it exists to bow down before the idols of culture. Sometimes those idols look different in different places and different times and different contexts and different cultures, but God's people have always been asked to bow the knee to something other than God. Even in our recent history, and you can follow this in the opening chapters of of Romans, even in in America throughout the last 40, 50 years, we saw first sexual revolution, then homosexual revolution, and now we're seeing a revolution in our culture where anything goes. And the demand to bow before the idol is getting stronger and stronger and stronger. Christian education, uh, higher Christian education, uh, universities are being threatened to remove their tax-exempt status. Uh, Some of them, attempts have been made. This is not just about money, by the way. It's not just uh, once a a university's tax-exempt status has been removed, uh, it, it now has to pay taxes in a different way, but it's really about control. Once a university's tax-exempt status is removed, it no longer retains religious protections and privileges, and now the state can then control it. Bakers and florists are being told who they must serve, even right here as near as the Tri-Cities. As I mention these things, I think there's an inherent danger that requires a disclaimer. And that is that no sin, no one sin is worse than another. I mean, after all, Adam and Eve ate fruit. I'm sure there's much more going on in Adam and Eve's heart than just eating fruit. But the church in this day and age must be very careful not to say that the idols we refuse to bow down before are greater sins than others. The church must never have what Jerry Bridges called respectable sins. Some sins that are respectable and tolerated inside the church, while others, for those out there, not so much. But right now, the LGBTQ plus agenda agenda is the idol in our culture that the church is being demanded to bow before. So I want to be very, very careful. Whatever sins there are that you struggle with, Whatever your choice, sin is, doesn't really matter. What matters is are you struggling with that sin? And so I want to be very careful not to set this LGBTQ plus agenda up as something different than anything else. I really love 1 Corinthians 6. 9 through 11, where where Paul, as he writes to the church in Corinth, and as worldliness has crept deeply into that church, he just levels everybody. There's nobody who escapes this list. Listen to his words there. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. 
Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkard, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. We could, we could reduce the list down to one thing, nor idolaters, and we would all be guilty. Because idolatry doesn't consist merely, as we see in Daniel chapter 3, of bowing before an image. It simply sets something else up in your heart, as, other than God, as the thing that will satisfy your soul. It could be our spouses, or our children, or our church, or our jobs, or our recreation. We all make this list, and then verse 11, I love this. Notice his words here, past tense, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. When we trust in Christ, when our identity is no longer according to our sin, but according to Christ, whatever sins it were, was we struggled with, we, we were Some of you were sexually immoral, were idolaters, were adulterers, were people who practiced homosexuality, were thieves, were greedy, were drunkards, were revilers, were swindlers. But such were some of you, no longer, because in Christ you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Those in Christ have have a new identity. And so if this, as I mentioned even this morning, the the idol of the LGBTQ plus agenda that we are being asked to bow before, if this is your struggle, you're no worse than anyone else. And if you think that somebody who does struggle with that is worse than you, then I would press into some heart work. We're also being asked to bow before the cultural idol of ethnicity. I prefer the word ethnicity over race because Christ came to save the human race and nobody is exempt from that based upon the color of their skin or where they were born or the language that they speak. We're being asked to discriminate as a way to fight racism. It will never work. The only way to stop discriminating is to stop discriminating. I'm not saying racism doesn't exist and I'm not saying it shouldn't be battled where it does exist. I'm simply saying that in God's kingdom, the color of your skin, the language that you speak, it does nothing in terms of earning favor with God. Christ and Christ alone does that. Some of us are asked to to fall down and worship before the idol of environmentalism. And some conservatives have forgotten that the first command was to tend the garden while some liberals have elevated the garden above mankind. The reality is, at some point in our culture, we will all be asked to bow before the idols of our culture. And this is where our friends Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, or according to their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come into our story today. 
Let's work through the 30 verses in chapter 3 one by one. And we're going to stop and talk a little bit about some of the language behind here because I think there's some wordplay. And also, as I've already mentioned, when, you get to, when we get to these mechanical, uh, repeated lists, it's supposed to be that way. We're supposed to, to hear it as almost like this, this Pavlovian response. You know Pavlov's, Pavlov's dogs, he rang the bell and they would salivate. Like It's kind of that kind of thing. The music would play and the people would fall down and worship. And, and we should understand it to be strange and mechanical and responsive. So let's go from there. Nebuchadnezzar the king, in verse 1 of chapter 3, made an image of gold. That word image is going to be important to us today because the word is in Hebrew is selim. Selim, it's an, it's an image. And if we rewind all the way back to chapter 2, not that that's that far, we remember that Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. And in this dream, there was a large selim. And the tzelem, this image, was uh, made of gold. It had a head of gold and then uh, different materials as we made all the way down to the feet. And we connected those to different kingdoms. That, that Nebuchadnezzar was the head, as Daniel says. And this head of gold represented his kingdom in Babylon. And then out of that was the Medo-Persian Empire. And then Greece. And then Rome. And then ultimately the revised Babylon that will come at the end of time. But Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. And in the dream was an image, a tselem, and the head of the image was made of gold, and he was that gold. And in apparent defiance to this dream and to the message of God, we find Nebuchadnezzar, the king, who makes an image of gold. I think what Nebuchadnezzar is doing here is, okay, God, you think I'm just the head of gold? You've got it wrong. I'm the whole thing. And so he makes this whole image out of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits and its width 6 cubits. That's 90 feet high by 9 feet wide. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon, the same plain where the Tower of Babel was set up originally. Then Nebuchadnezzar, the king, sent word to assemble the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to come up to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces were assembled for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up, and they were standing before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the herald loudly called, To you it is said, O peoples, nations, and men of every tongue, that at that time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. Not only is he declaring with the construction of this image that he is not just the head of this statue, this image, he is the whole thing. He is calling every, every ruler in every province, in every part of his kingdom to come before this image and worship. And he is essentially making the statement, I am in charge. I am God. 
verse 6, there is consequence associated with this. But whoever does not fall down in worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. Now, this was not designed as a torture device. It was not an execution chamber. They were large, round-shaped, cylindrical kilns that were used for firing bricks. They burned charcoal, and they could reach a temperature of about 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit. Therefore, verse 7, at that time, when all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every tongue fell down and worshipped the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Now, verse 8, notice the words that start here. For this reason. For this reason, at that time, certain Chaldeans came near and brought charges against the Jews. Now, what we find here is that the Jews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego included, would not bow before the image. They knew to whom they must bow. And Nebuchadnezzar was not him. And the people didn't like it. It's not Nebuchadnezzar who who noticed this and brought charges. No, it is the the Chaldeans, it is the leaders, it is the same people who couldn't interpret the dreams in Daniel 2 who noticed the Jews not obeying the law and they bring the matter to the king like a bunch of tattletales. Verse 9, they answered and said to Nebuchadnezzar the king, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music, is to fall down and worship the golden image. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon. So these three the king had appointed outside to to lead in the province while Daniel ministered in the presence of the king. There are certain men appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, do not pay attention to you. They do not serve your gods and and do not worship the golden image that you have set up. I think the question before us as we read this is what idols are you tempted to bow down before? And for what reasons are you tempted to bow before them? Certainly there were some who no doubt bowed in awe of this 90-foot golden statue. There were certainly some who, who believed that it was, it was worthy of bowing before. I'm certain there are also some who just bowed because other people did. Man, everybody else is bowing. I'm just going to bow too. I'm just going to go with the flow. I'm quite certain there were probably some who bowed because they just didn't want to die. Whatever reason tempts you to bow before an idol, I would remind you that bowing before an idol is always more dangerous than whatever consequences may come for not bowing in this life. Bowing before any idol is always more dangerous than whatever the consequences might be 
in this life. But you know what? Not all idols are cultural. Sometimes our culture demands that we bow before its idols. Sometimes we're just really good at creating them ourselves. Christians, brothers and sisters, we are every bit as likely to set up idols in our own hearts. The only difference between us and the world is that we have no excuse for not tearing them down. But Western Christians are easily tempted to idolize family. Sports and studies triumph over family, or family devotions and faithful discipleship. Churches empty during the summer as our hearts chase what we love most. We go to church to disciple our kids only after we have discipled them and really us according to the worship of things that really and truly captivate our hearts. Then, when they grow up and they love things uh, more than the Lord, we sit around and we wonder why. We served their idols. We set them up as idols. We pursue everything according to those idols. When we have leftover time, we pursue God and spiritual things and church. Is it really a wonder why they grow up to love something else? Politics easily become idols. I got to be careful here. I do think, as I've said before, that we can and even should use cultural means to, or whatever means are built into the culture to impact the culture. I'm not saying we shouldn't. But let me ask is a victory for your guy a victory for the kingdom? Is the church better off when your politician wins? Because it doesn't matter what politician wins. Jesus is on the throne. Babylon is almost always in Scripture representative of what a society is when it builds itself up without God. And the great contrast of that was to be Israel. And they're in captivity in Babylon for their failure to do that. Let's not forget that you can have a Republican Babylon or a Democratic Babylon. Or maybe it's wealth, status, power, sex, stuff, influence, our own bodies. These are all possible candidates for idolatry. What idols are you tempted to bow before? And for what reasons? Be very, very careful. Verse 14. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, he questions them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you are not serving my gods and do not worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready... At the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music, then you shall fall down and worship the image that I have made. But if you do not worship, you will, be, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And here is the question of Daniel chapter 3. And what God is there who can save you out of my hand? All right, boys, we're going to play some music. 
and you're going to fall down before the idol that I have set up. And if you don't, there is no one who can help you. I love Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's answer here. Listen to this, verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to respond to you with an answer concerning this matter. The king just asks you whether or not you are falling down before him and the cost is your life. And their simple response is not even, no, we don't don't bow before you. Their simple response is, oh, we don't even answer to you. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to respond to you with an answer concerning this matter. Are you tempted to think you need to argue with the culture? I'm not saying we can't ever talk to people. I'm not saying we can't ever have meaningful conversation about things. But when the world demands that you bow, are you tempted to think you have to explain yourself? Or at some point, is the right answer just to say, you know what, I answer to somebody else. And you let the chips fall where they may. And then in verse 17, we see like Daniel in previous chapters, they don't know the outcome. Alistair Begg was like, sometimes I wish I could just read Daniel 3 and not know the end of the story. Like what happens next? Because we know, but they don't. Verse 17, if it be so, if, if we get thrown into the fire, our God whom we serve is able to save us from the bla- furnace of blazing fire. They didn't know he would. They just knew he was able. And he, he will save us out of your hand, O king, one way or another. And how do I know that? Because look what it says in verse 18. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods and we will not worship the golden image that you have set up. No, king, we don't answer to you but we won't bow. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath and the image, there it is, there's the wordplay, and the tselem of his face changed. He saw an image in chapter two, he built an image in chapter three, and now the image of his face has changed because they won't bow. It changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He answered and said to heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. There would have been no way to measure this. This is just a simple statement. Make it as hot as you possibly can. And he said to certain mighty men of valor, this is military fighting men who were in his military host, to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in order to cast them into the furnace of blazing fire. I wonder if this is not what Peter has in mind in 1 Peter 4.12 when he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial among you. In Exodus, Egypt is called a fiery furnace. Here, the nation of Israel is in the fiery furnace of Babylon, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are about to go into the literal fiery furnace. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing 
were happening to you. We're all going to face the fire at some point. We're all going to be asked to bow. We're all going to have to refuse. And at some point, it's going to come with consequences. Then, verse 21, these men were tied up in their trousers, their coats, their caps, and their other clothes and were cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. For this reason, because the king's word was urgent and the furnace had been heated to an extraordinary degree, the flame of the fire killed those men who carried up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire, still tied up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, the king, was astounded and hurriedly stood up. He answered and said to his high officials, was it not three men we cast up into the, into the midst of the fire? They answered and said to the king, Certainly, O king. He answered and said, Look, I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the furnace of blazing fire and answered. This is the answer to the question in verse 15. What God is there who can save you out of my hands? Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out, you servants of the Most High God, and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the midst of the fire. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's high officials gathered around and saw in regard to these men that the fire had no power over the bodies of these men, nor was the hair of their head singed, nor were their trousers damaged, nor had the smell of fire even come upon them. It didn't even smell like charcoal. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and saved his servants, who put their trust in him violating the king's word and gave up their bodies so as not to serve and not to worship any god except their own god. Therefore, and we should not be tempted as he says this to think he's learned his lesson. He praises God in chapter 2 and in chapter 3 he's mad. In chapter 3 he's about to tell us why God most high is blessed. But in chapter 4 we're going to see he has forgotten as well. But here he says, Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation, or tongue that says anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses reduced to a rubbish heap, inasmuch as there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. He doesn't command everybody to worship this God. He simply says nobody can say anything bad about this God. Then the king caused Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to succeed in the province of Israel. There is much, or in the province of Babylon, there is much debate as to who the first or the fourth person in the fire was. Some say Jesus, some say an angel. I'm inclined to think, based upon the language used in this chapter, that, that it's an angel, not Jesus. But in reality, it doesn't matter. Because either way you see it, whether it's Jesus with them or whether it's an angel with them, the point of this whole chapter is to ask the question, what God is able to save? And the answer is the Lord. The Lord is the one who saved them. Not this angel, 
The angel is of no consequence here. It is that God is able to save them. And Nebuchadnezzar doesn't answer and say, blessed be the angel of God. He says, no, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who sent his angel and saved his servants who put their trust in him. I'm inclined to think that what this is doing for us is prefiguring Christ. See, in my own thinking, most of the time, I think God does his best work when he keeps me out of the furnace. But what we see in Scripture is that he's not so much a God who gets out of the furnace, but who gets in it with us. And I'm not talking about the angel here. I'm talking about Christ who didn't just save us out of the world, he came into it. He experienced it like we experience it. He went through the fiery trial, and we're told in 1 Peter 4 not to be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon us. Like me in the garden, Jesus prays, Father, let this pass from me, and yet he still ends up in the fiery trial. But unlike Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he died so that we might live, so that they might live. He got in the fire with us and succumbed to death because of the consequence of our sin so that that consequence and the wrath of God and eternity in hell and the burning fire that we deserve might not touch us and when we get to heaven we won't even smell like smoke he died so that the fires of death might not touch us and he saves us out of the fires of hell at some point we will all have to decide will we bow before the idols of our own hearts or of the culture We should be reminded that in Jesus' trial, Satan tempted him to bow. And he will tempt us to bow as well. Whatever the trial is, however hot the flames, whatever the cost of faithfulness, he is Emmanuel, God with us. Matthew 1, 21 through 23. She will bear a son, You will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who is not just ruling over us, though you do. We thank you that you are not just a God who saves us, though you do, but you are a God who is with us, that you became one of us, that we might see you, that we might see what you look like, that we might have a greater understanding into how you work and your character, and ultimately, you became one of us that you might die for us. Lord, let us not be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon us. But let us also never be willing to bow the knee. And let us also understand that we owe no one an answer for what we bow to but you. And that you are able to save. And that if you do not in this life, 
in Christ you already have in the next. Our one defense, our righteousness. Oh God, how we need you. Glorify yourself not only here and among us, in our hearts and minds and lives, but in the world as well. 